Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Now, here's what my goal is today uh, for our time together. My goal is to spend about 20 minutes looking at what Revelation says to these seven churches. And then my goal is for us to shift and spend about the same amount of time talking about our church. If a letter was written to our church at Olive Branch today, what kinds of things would we potentially find inside of it? So begin with me. If we're going to first start by spending about 20 minutes looking right here at this uh, these letters to the seven churches, then look with me beginning in Revelation chapter 1. Why don't you look at verse 9? Because I want to introduce you to the letters as a whole by showing you some things that they share in common and giving a little understanding to them. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things that will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you see in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So John's given this amazing vision of Jesus present before him in this awe-inspiring, glorious manner that he tries with words to begin to articulate to us that we read and try to imagine alongside of him. And it's a bit overwhelming. And what he finds is that Jesus is walking amongst seven golden lampstands that are set up behind him. These represent, it tells us, the seven churches that will not only receive this letter and the whole of Revelation, but they in this letter will be directly addressed by Jesus inside of it. And so you'll see the first one happens right after this, chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things. 
Now, he will address the angel that's positioned over seven different churches. It's a Greek word that's used in the New Testament. It can be translated one of two ways. Either an angelic messenger from God from heaven is how it can be translated, or at other times, it's translated as just a messenger, not a spiritual entity that left the presence of God, but someone who's been commissioned by God to carry a message. The same Greek word that would be translated angel would be translated for the messenger named John the Baptist. Even when John's in prison and he sends messengers to Jesus, Jesus affirms them as John's messengers, this same Greek word. It will also be used later on, I believe it's in the book of James, when he writes about Rahab receiving the messengers, the spies from the Old Testament that the children of Israel sent out into Jericho that she received these messengers. So most of the time in, in this Greek word is used where it's describing a spiritual entity that's come from the presence of God with a mission, an angel. But it's also used interchangeably to speak of a physical person, a normal human being who God has commissioned with a message. So most scholars read these letters and say that the angel is not speaking of some guardian angel over the church, but it's speaking of the messenger, really the pastor, the shepherd over a church that these are addressed to that messenger and his congregation around him. So most scholars are on the same page agreeing that that's what this is talking about. Now, there's at least three things that you'll find in the content of these seven different letters that they all share in common that most commentators are quick to point out that you'll see this as a pattern throughout them. And those three different things are you're going to see positive affirmation, and then you're going to find corrective exhortation and then eternal reorientation. Now, I can't take credit for the iteration there. Uh, that's what so many people actually point out and even use that same verbiage, that this is what you find inside these seven letters, is that Jesus will affirm them, and then Jesus will confront and exhort them, leaving him only at the end of each of these letters to reorient them, to place their attention back on eternity and his gracious love for them. In fact, look at the first church and how he'll do these three things. Read it with me, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel, or the messenger of the church of Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Remember, that's a picture of the churches. I know, okay, here's what's coming. He's about to give some affirmation. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. And you have per persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Do you hear the affirmation here? It's that you've believed the right things and you've even done the right things, he's telling them. Nevertheless, verse 4, I have this against you. Now here comes the exhortation that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you have hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I have also hated. Now the exhortation here is, you've allowed your duty to replace devotion. You've lost the love, he says, that you once had for me. So you need to re-engage your heart and, and re-engage with love for me once again because that was the point of it all. 
Oh, yes, he says he affirms them. Oh, you, you think the right things, you do the right things, you believe the right things, but you not realize that it's become so disconnected from being connected to the right person. Love for me, Jesus. So here's the reorientation. Here's what he says to them, placing their eyes back on him and on eternal things. Verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to him from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The eternal reorientation carries a reminder of the promise of life with God, a promise that he makes, though, to those who what? Well, he said it right there, to those who overcome. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of paradise of God. For us to overcome, though, you you know your Bible. If you remember the story of the New Testament, If we are to be overcomers, it's something we can only do through faith in Jesus and his gracious gift. It's it's the only way that we overcome. We fail in every way. It's only faith in Jesus. So he says, if you're an overcomer, what is he telling you to do? Turn your eyes back to Jesus. Fall in love with him again. Look to him in faith. Oh, and he will make you an overcomer. And your reward for that faith is the gracious gift and privilege of being with God forever. Something we have not earned, something we have freely been given because of the great love of Christ who became our substitute. And we love him, scripture says, because he first loved us. He tells them, if you're an overcomer, then I will give to you the chance to eat of the tree of life, to be in the garden of God forever. Jesus is inviting them to return to him and find salvation to find forgiveness, to find grace, to find a new start, to find love from him and to love him in return. That's what he's inviting them back into. See, these are the three things that you find throughout all seven of these letters. You find affirmation, then you find exhortation, then you find Jesus pausing them, slowing them down to reorient them around eternity. Now track with me. Here's what I want to do for the next couple of minutes because I've already used eight minutes of my 20 to talk about these Uh, seven letters. I want to do three things with you. I want to talk about the relevance of all seven of these letters to every church throughout the ages. And then I'll briefly mention a second thing. And that's the different eras of church history that I believe that they represent that is more fun for you to study on your own than for us to discuss at length today. And then I want to talk about the unique relevance of one of these specifically for us today, one of these seven letters. So first, the relevance of all seven letters to every church throughout the ages. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 22, at the end of the seventh letter, here's how God speaks to the people. He says, what he says makes it clear that there is relevance and potential application for everyone who would read any of these seven letters when he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is speaking here and he does not limit these messages to those who he addressed directly in them. Instead, he calls to anyone that's willing to read or listen, to hear the voice of God's spirit, resonate in and through these letters as God actively speaks to churches still today through them and to modern followers of Jesus still, individuals through them. So listen for me, Uh, listen please to how God affirms and exhorts these churches and be open even to hearing the voice of God speak into your life today as you're stepping into a new year together. So the church of Ephesus, we just talked about it. His affirmation is, yes, you're getting all the right things done. You're, you're doing the right things. You believe the right things even. 
But the exhortation was, although those things are true about you, you've lost what's most important, and that's your love for Jesus, for me, he said. Slow down and go back and do the things we used to do when that love was so present. And if you're like me, then you've probably had seasons of life that this describes to a T. You're still doing the right things. You still believe the right things, but you've lost your love for Jesus. For so many of us, we've experienced this, but we have to heed what he says to do. Oh, go back and do the things you used to do. Turn your eyes back to Jesus where you find love and grace and hope and joy and peace again. Allow him to be the the one pouring out love towards you and then you love him because he's first loved you. Receive his love again. Sit with Jesus again if you've lost sight of him. That's the exhortation. Oh, the eternal reorientation, remember, is that God in his grace has done all that was needed for you to belong again in the family of God. Don't get lost in your doing and working because all that was needed to be done has been done for you by Jesus himself. Oh, to that second church, the church in Smyrna, it's the persecuted church that he will write to. It's a church that literally geographically, historically existed and was in, in great, a community that was in great opposition to it. And he affirms them that you've persevered when afflicted and when suffering, when persecuted. And the exhortation was, don't fear. Don't lose heart. Oh, but why wouldn't we lose heart if we're being persecuted? If you feel overwhelmed and afflicted, the eternal reorientation answers that question, why not lose heart? Well, because this will only last a temporary length of time, he tells them. But in the end, I will crown you with life everlasting. Then he writes to a third church, to the church at Pergamos. It's the compromising church. He writes to them, affirming them, I know your works I see that you're up against cultural pressures and oppositions, and I affirm that you haven't given up yet. But his exhortation was, but I have a few things that are against you. It's that you've mixed your devotion with materialism. It's that you've mixed it with a desire for relevance. You've you've mixed your devotion. You've mingled your love for me with a, a perverse culture's indulgence of sexual immorality. Repent and turn away from the culture you find yourself in. And then the eternal reorientation, like children of Israel before you, who I gave manna to them to sustain and satisfy them, I will give you what this world never could. I will give you everlasting satisfaction. Jesus promises that when you repent, he would also give you, he says to them, a white stone. The idea is a clean slate, a fresh start, forgiveness and grace if you'll turn away from your sin and you'll turn back to Jesus today. To the angel of the church of Thyatira, the the fourth church, it's a corrupted church. The affirmation is that that you're growing. You, You really are in faith and service. But the exhortation is you're blindly following though other voices and they've completely distorted the gospel you first embraced because you've let someone else's voice hold the weight and authority that God's voice alone should hold in your life. So you've been led far from God and into sinful and destructive beliefs and practices. Oh, repent and turn away from their false teaching and turn again to God and his authority. The eternal reorientation. Oh, don't you remember that God has welcomed you as a son and an heir together with Christ, that you will rule and reign over creation with him. Okay, so that fifth church, look in your Bible. He writes to Sardis. 
You're going to find it at the beginning of chapter 3. It's, it's referred to, you'll see the little title in your Bible as the dead church. Now, that's, that's not a part of the original manuscripts, these little chapter breaks and, and little titles that are given. But this is throughout the ages how these churches were known. And, and they were rightly called this, the dead church. The affirmation, there really truly isn't any. I mean, you could say, I affirm that you're there to hear my rebuke and exhortation. Jesus does say to this church that there are still a few, verse three, or verse four in chapter three, there are a few that have not been corrupted, who still have genuine faith. But he gives an exhortation at the end of verse one. You have a name and reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. Oh, they're going through the motions but there's no genuine joy or love or devotion left inside of them. My friends, many of us have found ourselves like this in seasons too, where we, we are dead inside, but, but keeping up a face so that others don't realize just how bad we're struggling or how far we've fallen. But what Jesus here is calling them to do is what he calls us to do, to stop acting to hear the exhortation warning of Jesus here that you will stand before him in an unexpected moment, but hear also the invitation of Jesus here to return to him and receive white garments, a symbol of purity and a victory, and he will make you victorious, free you and wash you clean when you're willing to quit faking and come to him again. We're meant to answer God's original question to humanity in the garden. Remember, he asked them, where are you? Adam, where are you? This is appealing. That, that same voice is calling from heaven saying, where are you? Will you be real and genuine? And when you are, there's this eternal reorientation that repent and come clean today. And I will not be ashamed to call you my own before my father and all of heaven forever, Jesus said. The sixth one to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, the faithful church, there's affirmation that you have little strength left, but you've endured. You've remained faithful despite there even being opposition, not only from the culture around you, but even some people and their religious opinions about you. The exhortation is hold on just a little bit longer. Even though you feel beat up by the world and even in moments beat down by some of the religious circles around you, hang on and all will see and know, verse 9, the end of it, that I have loved you. Just wait, because they'll see that I have loved you. My friends, some of you, you may feel like today you're here and you're standing alone as you look into a new year and it's overwhelming where it seems that everyone is turned on you. But here Jesus promised today, soon they will know that you have always been the beloved of God. Verse 9. The eternal reorientation, if this is you, beat down and wiped out, then hear Jesus' words as he points your heart and your attention forward, promising that you will stand tall like a pillar of the saints in heaven. And then there's a seventh church, the church of Laodicea. But pause here before we jump in to talk about them, about their affirmation, exhortation, and eternal reorientation. Do you hear in these letters, not only the relevance of these letters, but do you find even a bit of yourself inside of these letters? Or more importantly, do you find the gracious appeal of Jesus within these letters appealing to broken, sinful, fallen people, appealing to them to come back to him again and again where they can have confidence in what they will find when he greets them? And it won't be anger. It's gracious love. 
Oh, there's relevance to these seven letters to every church throughout the ages. But these seven letters also represent eras of the capital church's history throughout the ages. This is something many biblical scholars agree about that I'm just going to briefly touch on, and then you can go do your Google searches later. But uh, these seven letters written to seven specific historic churches also function as a snapshot of seven eras of the church's history throughout the ages. Perfect. Thank you, Miss Ruth, for putting that slide up there. So if you look at church history from a bird's eye view, and for us, we have the benefit of hindsight. If you look at Ephesus, the loveless church, it really represents the first century, where by the end of the first century, yes, it's had explosive growth, but also persecution coming with it. And you remember Judaizers dragging people and their theology back under the law, something that we'll talk about beginning next week by looking at the book of Galatians together, where the people are beginning to lose their love for Jesus. Sure, they still have some religious zeal left in them, but he's calling them back to himself. But then a second phase in in church history begins for the second and third century, and it's represented by the church in Smyrna, a great period of persecution, widespread persecution and even martyrdom. And then Pergamos comes. It's the compromising church. It begins in 316, where you remember the emperor Constantine issues the Edict of Milan, which accepted Christianity, and within 10 years, it would become the official religion of the Roman Empire. You fast forward to Thyatira in 606 AD, the historical development of the papal and patriarchal systems of the centralized church government was established, making Rome and the Pope specifically the head of the church. Let me quote to you from what we just read a moment ago about the exhortation that was given to this church. The exhortation is that they were blindly following other voices and have completely distorted the gospel that they first embraced, that they've let someone else's voice hold the weight and authority that God alone should have held in their life. So now they've been led far from God into sinful and destructive beliefs and practices. Sardis then represents the dead church. Beginning in 1517, it's the Protestant Reformation that began in that year when Martin Luther, a teacher and monk, published a document that we now refer to as his 95 Theses. Again, let me quote to you from what we just discussed about the affirmation to this church that Jesus gave them, and think about it in light of that era of history. The affirmation was that there wasn't much at all other than that Jesus does say that there are a few that have not been corrupted and that he sees their genuine faith. And then the exhortation that you have a name and reputation that you are alive, but you're dead. You're going through the motions, but there's no genuine joy or love or devotion left inside of you. Do you hear Jesus appealing, calling people out of a broken system? And then the faithful church in Philadelphia. In 1739, there's something that church historians talk about. They refer to as the Great Awakening that broke out. A series of revivals, beginning with John Wesley and a few of his very close friends. Something we'll actually talk a bit about next week. But it broke out, those revivals did, leaving them with a passion for God and a passion for the nations. And it led to the modern missionary movement. After centuries with barely anyone going out to spread the good news of Jesus, when the Roman Catholic Church was using conquest for colonization rather than gospel ministry, all of a sudden, the church was re-engaging with lost people all over the globe. But that would leave us then with that seventh church being the lens that we're to look at the modern church age through. And so this is that last piece that I'm now out of time, but will still break the rules and mention, no surprise to you. Uh, Real quick, the uniqueness of, of the relevance of this one specific letter, and that's the church to the Laodiceans, because this would represent us, at least if it's correct, it would. Read it with me. 
chapter 3, verse 14, and to the messenger of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you hear the juxtaposition? You think you have everything, but don't you see the reality? You have nothing. You're impoverished. You need help for everything. I counsel you to buy from me, come to me for gold refined in the fire, that you may be truly rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, is this the 20th and 21st century church? I mean, if we think back in our minds to the beginning of the 20th century, the emergence of modernism, movements toward modifying traditional beliefs in accordance with modern ideas, especially in areas of religion, broke onto the scene. Followed by postmodernism, dictionary.com would read, uh, would define it as it representing a departure from modernism and has at its heart a general distrust of grand theories and big ideologies, a postmodern era. And then across the Western world swept moral relativism, where there is no moral absolute truth. What's true for you or right for you is great for you, but not right at all for me. And how dare you claim that you have that kind of zeal or passion or authority? No, it's all different for all of us. And then in the last decade or two, the emergence of even a post-truth era, which again is defined as where a time where objective truth is no longer valued and sometimes completely discarded because people would rather live with their emotionally charged opinions than the truth. This is not just a developing succession of events in our culture outside of the church. You'd probably agree, if we're being honest, that this is also what's happened inside the church where mainline denominations have thrown out the scriptures and are allowing the culture's new look at sex and, sex and sexuality to rewrite their narrative. While, okay, that's what mainline denominations are doing, while church tribes different from them have also thrown out the gospel, they're guilty of the same thing because they've allowed political partisanism, their agenda and bias to reshape and even replace their call to disciples, to be a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus. They had new marching orders. And across many tribes and denominations, the gospel has become so diluted in the modern era, in our modern evolving culture, so as to not offend those who are outside of the church. And God forbid that we dare to offend anyone inside the church. And all of that is a look where we haven't even left the Western Hemisphere yet. You know what it's like when you take a big drink of water. For, for me on Fridays, I typically take that morning and I'll either go and surf or I'll go for a long run on the coast. 
And when I get back to my car after surfing or a long run, I'm looking for something to drink. And if I've been on a long run and, you know, an hour, an hour plus, and I get to my car and it's a hot day, I, I foolishly every time, it's like I'm tricked. It's like the Charlie Brown thing where they lift the football every time and he still hasn't learned. You know, you take that big drink anticipating refreshment and what you find instead is just lukewarm water. And you gag on it. You spit it out because there's nothing about it that's refreshing. It's not at all what you intended to find or wanted to find or should have found in that moment. And this is how Jesus describes the modern era. The affirmation, well, there's really not much of of any at all. The affirmation is that Jesus reminds them that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. So the correction here and the exhortation they receive is not something that they or we should view as super harsh from Jesus. Rather, we should see it as his loving and gracious, patient voice appealing to us. Oh, the exhortation, it's clear to to the church that exists in a lukewarm state uh, of apathy and indifference to repent, he said, and be zealous, be passionate. And he said, don't rely on your riches, but realize that you're spiritually impoverished. that You lack the very things that you need. Wealth is not the problem. Looking to our wealth, our position, our, our, our status, our comfort for our security and significance is a grave problem. And it describes the 21st century where we are found with our whole identity wrapped up, our security and significance linked to the cul-de-sac we live on, the car that we drive, the balance in our bank accounts, the title that we hold. Where all of these superficial things are, are the things that we value most in a most weighted way in our culture. But then Jesus interjects here. He asks for passion here. And then he gives a, a moment of eternal reorientation where he says that you will share in the throne of Christ if you turn to him that you'll be welcomed, I'll be welcomed, accepted, and fully restored is what he's promising. My friends, don't think that we are exempt from this, from this warning and exhortation for sure written to the church of Laodicea, but nor are we exempt from that gracious appeal of Jesus. The promise that we'll be welcomed again at Christ's table and upon even his future throne. Okay, now take a deep breath. Let's talk about our own church for a couple of minutes. And I will not be so bold as to refer to the comments that I'm about to make about our own church as this being God's letter to us. Because when John received these letters, it's because he had a vision and encounter with Jesus himself. And what I'm going to share with you did not involve those things. It didn't involve me seeing someone with eyes like fire and a sword emerging from his mouth as I penned these notes and thoughts. These are instead just the words and prayers of your messenger seen with the lampstand, your pastor. And this is what our elder team has been seeing and even things that we've been praying for together as a team. And if you're new to our church, we are an elder-led church with a team of us working together to serve the Lord by serving you and leading our church forward and into the future. Uh, For 2023, we currently have four elders in our church, John Boyd, Pepper Lawrence, myself, and Danny Jack. We are a non-denominational church. We like to refer to ourselves as a Jesus-loving Bible church. And if there was a letter written to us, what would it say we'd question? Well, I'd assume it would have these same three areas, affirmation, exhortation, and reorientation. So I want to briefly do this with you. The positive affirmation is the first thing that I'd love to just share with you my heart and really some of what our elder team met even this week and discussed about three specific areas that we see as unique things that God is doing in the life of our church in this season that we're giving thanks for that I really want to share with you. And the first is 
I want to affirm your graciousness. Your graciousness. It's a unique thing to celebrate that our church is multi-generational. Like, look around right now. You can actually look. There's diversity here. And that is an expression of God's grace, but it's also evidence of you having that gracious heart as well. Because to be multi-generational requires a gracious heart and attitude from each facet and demographic represented in our church. It's much easier and more comfortable to be with people who look like you, think like you, and share the same life experience and are in the same walk of life or chapter of life with you. But it's such a healthy and God-honoring thing to have a multi-generation generational church, uh, not only present, but seated together around the same tables, even inside homes throughout the week in our home groups. And I'll just tell you, for me as a young pastor, this is a really unique thing that God is doing here that I really do commend you for your graciousness because most people like me that are my friends, they, they pastor one or the other. They stepped into a church that was mostly older folks, older saints, or they stepped into one and those people departed and a new chapter began with completely different people who were the same walk of life. Typically, the, the shelf life of a pastor, the rule of thumb is you typically pastor a congregation about 10 years older than you and to about 10 years younger than you. That's your window. Now, it's not because I'm good. It's because you're gracious that some of you are a few years older than 10 years older than me. Just a few. So if you feel like, I want to say this to you, if you feel like you're the minority here, though, when you look around and say, yeah, there's diversity, but there's not that many who are like me, please don't leave. Because we need you then. If there's not many like you, then we need you and your eyes, your heart, your unique perspective, and your unique life experience. So I thank you and I affirm the work of God in our church that you're gracious. And the evidence of that is that we look around every week and see that we are multi-generational, not just here, but even in our home groups. But I would also say that you're gracious in another area. Your graciousness is also seen in that you're willing to receive from a young pastor. Now, I could be a, making this accusation in a self-serving manner because I'm now entering into an era of my life where 40 is lurking in the shadows about to swallow me whole. And I heard it's all downhill from there. But, you know, for those of you who are young, you're gracious in choosing to grow together with my family. It's super gracious that you'd be willing to do that, that we could grow together and have our kids grow together. For those of you who are a little less young, you've been incredibly gracious, and it's been super humbling, that you've been willing to receive from someone who might be several steps behind you in a lot of different areas. And I was nervous and prayed often uh, for God to please bring us together as one church when we first arrived here, rather than it turning into a church that looked a lot like me, and maybe he has given me a bald head so that it can still look like me and identify with all sorts of generations and not have anyone get lost in the shuffle. But, but I want to thank you and I want to affirm in you your graciousness and your willing to have a pastor be young and be up here teaching and leading and you be willing to receive. Uh, it says a lot about your heart and maturity, about your graciousness. But there's a third area that I see this graciousness, and that's that when preferences are held here, they're held onto very lightly. And that's a big deal. That's a gracious choice. You might prefer to have a comfortable building that requires no setup, 
but you've been gracious with us. You might prefer a kids program that keeps them separate from us when last week we brought them present with us and even put them up front before you. You might prefer a quiet atmosphere, but I just heard a car drive by and at times you hear a baby cooing or you'll hear another noise happening around us, or even teachers who come to get their supplies from their classroom, and that's fine and okay, and you've held on to that preference very loosely. You might prefer even a specific worship style. And when we're working with a rotation of worship leaders, maybe none of them even represent your preference, but you've chosen to hold on to your preferences with a very light grip, and that's because you're choosing to be a gracious church by holding those things so loosely. And so I affirm and thank you that there's evidence of God at work in our church because of the gracious atmosphere in our church. But the second thing I want to affirm you, and this is the other thing that our elder team was talking about this week, is that you're generous. You're not just gracious, but you're generous. You're generous first in your service to this church. So many of you roll up your sleeves to serve the Lord by serving each other here. For many of you, you don't just come on a Sunday here to receive, but you come with an attitude that I'm here to give something, to serve someone here. It's you who are greeters and who are part of our hospitality team. It's our audiovisual team. It's our tech team that make it possible for those who are at home to join us or those in the future who missed their time with us to hop online and catch a podcast. It's the safety team who are around and aware during our gatherings. It's our kids ministry team who are not just child care workers. They're children's ministers who take it upon themselves to minister to our kids in a really beautiful and impactful way. It's those of you who have opened your home to host a home group and others of you who have chosen to lead those home groups in those homes. It's the setup and teardown team here who if, you not, if you've not seen how they function and work like a well-oiled machine, it is a modern marvel. Now, I'll tell you, part of that modern marvel is there's a, a pastor I've gotten to know who was meeting in a school and they got to the point as a church for them to continue to meet. They needed to pay a moving company to come in and out every Sunday to set up and chair, tear down because they didn't have people who are willing to do that task any longer. So instead of paying that expense, they moved their service to a Sunday night so that they could occupy someone's unused church space in the evening. And it shifted the whole structure and the whole rhythm and pattern of their church. I don't say that to shame them. I say that to affirm and commend in you that I appreciate so much your generosity and willingness to roll up your sleeves and to serve those who are in this church. I mean, it's funny, we had a volunteer appreciation brunch last month, and we knew inevitably that we would miss or overlook someone who serves because we ended up inviting more than 50% of our church to come and be appreciated because of so many of you serving actively. So quick caveat, forgive us, be gracious, you're gracious, be gracious to me, to us. If you're the person we overlook, please forgive us if we failed to invite you. But it's because so many of you are so generous in your service to the Lord here in this church. So thank you. I affirm that that's the heart of God at work in you. But there's a second piece of this generosity. It's not just that you're generous in your service to this church. It's that you're generous in your service to one another. You don't merely serve the church corporately each Sunday. So many of you in such a beautiful and yet quiet way. In obscurity, you serve each other in such a beautiful way. You get a little glimpse of it when Roger got up weeks ago to thank you for stepping in and giving him a lift from point A to point B when he was not able to take himself. You get a glimpse of it earlier this year when Wayne thanked you after he took a tumble and many of you reached out and prayed for him. It was when one of you was hospitalized and a half dozen people scrambled to mobilize overnight to make sure that needs were met and you had a lift. 
It was seen when I received an email a couple weeks ago expressing gratitude to the two couples that jumped in to help a person prepare for a move. And I didn't even have any idea that that was happening. But it was so thankful because I hear often of the kind of generosity and care that this church has for one another. In fact, this week, there are two members of our church that were moved into care facilities because they needed full-time care. And my hope for them is that it's not full-time from here on out, but they received that step and, and those directives after our church has served those two individuals in incredible ways. And that's not our church administratively or structurally. It's organically through your lives. It's beautiful that that it looked like you doing everything from laundry and cleaning in those homes with no one knowing it or cooking to carpooling for them, paying bills, and even just the simple act of bringing a favorite ice cream cake over to their home to share with them. James 1.27 says this, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Thank you for your beautiful generosity to one another, that you serve each other so well. There's a third piece to that generosity, though, that I see, that we see, that we want to thank you for, and that is your stewardship and giving. And I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about money, but I'll have Miss Ruth throw this up on the screen. And I'll, I'll just I'll head you off at the pass. If you're doing the math, I get it. It actually equals 101%. Don't blame me. It's an auto-generated pie chart. It's common core math, I, I'm told. <laughs> I don't want to take a ton of time talking about money. Uh, I just want to take the moment to thank you. And, and then our elder team feels it, it, is, uh, it feels to be fitting for us to update you regarding our finances. So that's why the image is on the screen. You know, as a church, we've sought to be really frugal but not stingy. We want to be conservative in our spending but really liberal in our generosity. So frugal piece is that we never reopen the church offices. Instead, we stay uh, decentralized all through the week. And that's a frugal decision. But our giving to missions and outreaches has more than quadrupled over the past two years because that speaks to our heart to be generous. Yes, conservative in our spending, but liberal in our generosity. And in showing you our 2022 financial report, I'm showing you this for three reasons. The first is that I want you to know that we've got nothing to hide. And so we don't hide these things. In fact, we work with an outside accountant who is the one who helps us to generate and process these things. And then even weekly, if you contribute here and not just online, it's counted by more than one person always, accounted for, uh, so that there are multiple eyes on it. It's money that I never see or touch. It doesn't go home with me. I don't make the bank deposits. It heads off with another person who processes it so that these multiple people can check to make sure that it matches up against what was counted here. We take all of these things very seriously because this is the Lord's resources that you are giving to him and we are just stewards just as you have been. But the other reason I want you to see this is not just because we don't have anything to hide, but also because I want you to see that we're actively saving as a church really to prepare for a future space for our church to gather. And there are two different philosophies about a church being in our position. It's that you could stay in our position, which this church has done for 12 years. But by staying in it, it leaves you from being choked out so that you can't do missional work. Because sometimes you get into a building, your expenses go way up, which our expenses would go up. But as you can see, the margin is so great of what we're actively able to spend that even if we do take that step, we feel very confident that we could still be missional as we have been as a church and give generously to the work of the Lord outside of our four walls. You see, one philosophy is stay in a school to keep your expenses down. The other philosophy, though, 
is that it's really healthy for a community to see a new church pop up and plant its flag. And the reason that matters is because the culture around us is saying very loudly that the church is in regression and dying and soon will be gone. But for someone to plant a new flag and say, no, Jesus' kingdom is moving and advancing matters even to the psyche and subconscious of a community. The other philosophy states clearly that empty churches function like like castles in ruins. They speak to a community of an old dead king, but we have a risen savior. And if we believe that, then we should occupy a space at some point in time so that the community sees that the king is alive and moving forward. And so that's the tension we wrestle with and that for us as an elder team we're in. Uh, most churches will typically try to function in between 90 and 100% of their budget. And you can see we've got a very wide margin right now where God is providing at a rapid rate for us to save for the future. It's allowed us basically to function at around 68% in saving the rest. And, and according to some statistics, uh, churches across North America, they send about 4.5% of their income back out the door and into mission and outreach. But because you all have been so generous, we actually sent 13% of last year's giving total out the door to local ministry partners into international work around us. So that's the third reason. No, you can applaud for yourselves because that praise God that we are a little church that God is using in some really wonderful ways. That's the third thing that I really want, wanted you to see on this is that yes, it says 10% of this year's total, but we, we base the goal off of the previous year's giving. I hope that makes sense to you, that we build a baseline of 10% off of last year's giving total, and then you go through another year, and thankfully ours went up. And so that's why it's represented as 10%, uh, but it was actually 13 of the previous year's giving total. If I'm losing you, I'll describe that to you personally afterwards. Um, but I want you to see our mission and outreach budget is not about an amount of money, but think of the things that God allowed us to do this year. We partnered with local campus ministries on every local high school campus here in this community. Uh, we blessed this school, Painted Rock Elementary, by, by serving the staff here on multiple occasions and you even writing them cards in addition to the meals that we purchased for them. We partnered with Life Choices, the Crisis Pregnancy Center up the street, not just with your Christmas gifts, but with monthly support for them in partnership. And not just those local partners, but we've been a part of God's global mission this last year as a little church, partnering with Moms in Prayer that has their international headquarters just up the road from us here in Poway, where we put some of their discipleship materials into Farsi for the very first time so that it can get into many nations around the world where people have yet to receive those sorts of materials for discipleship. Our partnership with the Neglia family in Cork Island, Ireland was an incredible blessing to them this last year. And your generosity was felt by refugees who fled Ukraine and landed in Budapest when a church there that we partnered with told their people, if you'll take those refugees off the street and into your home, then we'll find a way to feed them. And we sent $10,000 that week to buy meals for refugees. There's another partner in Ukraine that we developed a relationship with who's pastoring a church in a, in a centrally located city because we contacted him and gave him aid to feed people who came their direction. When he realized that people could not go back to their cities and now we're seeking shelter in their church, he contacted us and said what would really help us is bathrooms that had showers so people could live here if need be. And so we gave again to do all of the infrastructure and the work to put showers in so that people were cared for inside a church that they knew where they could go for help. They could go somewhere where they're going to hear about Jesus and receive more than just a shower. It was the same week that our giving went up Oddly enough, by $12,000 that I had a conversation with that pastor again, and he said, we have a need for a van to take supplies in to cities that are war-torn and to get people who are stuck there out. And I said, well, how much would a van cost? He said, about $12,000. 
So I emailed our elder team, and by the end of the day, we are wiring money there to help them continue their mission of serving their countrymen and spreading the good news of Jesus to everyone that they could. It was our partner with HealthBridge Global, where they started offering e-visits with medical professionals through translators based in Romania, where we helped to under uh, to pay uh, all the that was involved in the back end of their geek squad who had to develop the app-based platform for then the word to get out inside Ukraine that people could receive medical care through this platform. It was us, this obscure church in, in San Diego, California, that was a part of that process. It's for us so many different things that we were able to give to, of people that we were able to bless, of doors that God just opened, of relationships we didn't have before that he brought to us, and needs he put on our lap that he had provided for beforehand. Praise God that you've been so generous and that he could use that heart of generosity to bless people all around us here locally and globally. Praise God for that. And if you give, then thank you that, that this is a part of your heart. And if you're someone who does not give in support of our church, this is not to shame you. And in fact, if you're here visiting and kicking the tires on the church, don't feel any pressure at all. I just say, if you're here and a part of this, though, I'd want you to be a part of what I think God is actively doing here that God, I think, is giving us an opportunity to be a part of what he's doing here and beyond here. And clearly, he's, he's made it clear, at least in my own heart, we have a future here. We have a future here in this community that God wants to continue. Swallowed a fly or something, I don't know what happened. <clears throat> no, that he wants to continue to use us. So the other thing I'll just say really quickly is, is your commitment. That's the third thing I just want to affirm you, and we can move on from the pie chart. Um, your commitment. The first thing I was told about this church is that this church is committed to Jesus and one another, and that is still true. And I hope that that's been your experience here, that you've seen that that's true, that people here are committed to Jesus and to one another. And that's such a beautiful thing. In fact, even for our church, our home groups are, are really what we call the backbone of our church. We're not just a church with home groups, we're a church of home groups, because we believe that that's the place that you're really going to experience the great gift of being known and loved inside a church. They have incredible value for those who are connected to them. And I asked Danny this morning, I said, what, is, what does our percentages look like right now? He said, at least 60% of our church, roughly 70% or more of our regular attenders are connected to a weekly home group here, which is awesome and something I'm so stoked about. So if you're not involved in a home group, I'd encourage you to jump in and connect with one. So if there was a letter to the church at Olive Branch, what would it say? Oh, it would affirm you, you're gracious, you're generous, and you're committed to Jesus and one another. And unfortunately, we're out of time for any exhortation, so no one will be upset at me. No, I don't have a, a pushy exhortation. I do want to tell you this, though. My exhortation is that you would commit to pray alongside myself and our elder team for a few things, so get a pen out. And the three things are provision, growth, and opportunity. Provision, Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few, so pray to the Lord of the harvest to provide laborers. And so we're asking for provision and asking that you would commit to pray Pray and ask God to raise up people to serve, yes, in every facet of our church and community around us, but more specifically, we need more people to serve in our kids' ministry, 
We're praying that God would bring someone and make clear that, that they are to lead a youth ministry for us and even a youth home group. And we're praying, like I mentioned before, uh, about our worship. We're praying for a consistent worship leader. We're thankful for God's provision of a rotation, but we're praying for a consistent leader to provide oversight over that and to lead more consistently. We are praying for a building, but I'll be really honest with you. We are also pausing and not actively pursuing one because we want to wait and see what happens with the economy and see if there are other needs that God brings our way that we need to prioritize over our own comfort because we think that's Jesus stuff. We think that that's what he's asked us to do. We're also praying for, for provision when it comes to partnership with the growing budget and mission and outreach budget. We don't want to just have a wide and very shallow impact by throwing small increments of money all over the place. We want to have deep partnerships with a narrow focus that have a deep impact. Like what would it look like for our church to step forward and to be a part of the process of an unreached people group receiving for the very first time scripture in their own language or for a church to be replanted in a war-torn country? Like, how could we have a narrow partnership and a deep impact? That's what we're praying for. So pray for provision for those things, but then pray for growth. In Scripture, it says that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Would you commit to pray for God to grow and expand our hearts in a few areas? The first being that we would become unhurried people, that we would make time to be still and sit quiet with Jesus. My friends, it's really hard to seek first the kingdom of God if you are not spending time on your own with that king on a regular basis. So I want to invite you, join me and others in our church, and spend time this year reading through the scriptures each day. And if you miss a day, it's not the end of the world. I missed this morning. I got up early to finish notes, and obviously I'm in big trouble. Um, But take one of these reading plans. You can grab one that's just the New Testament in a year. Uh, that will be about a chapter of scripture a day, or you could grab one that reads through the Old and the New Testament. It might take you 15 minutes a day to sit quiet with Jesus. The growth that I'm asking that you pray for is growth in each of us, that God would grow and expand our hearts to be an unhurried people and to be a praying people. In scripture, it says that Jesus made the statement that his house should be a house of prayer for all nations. We ought to be a place and culture made up of people who passionately pray regularly. And if you need prayer, the elders are always here as well as home group leaders wear their badges on a Sunday so that they're available to you. There's prayer cards in the back. They're not comment cards. Talk to an elder if you've got one of those. We don't hide. But there are prayer cards there. There's also a prayer link and button on our website. It gets sent out to 49 different people who are on our prayer team who will pray for you in real time. And then at 8.45 every Sunday morning, we have all church prayer that's open to you. I invite you, come pray with us. We don't just pray for our Sunday morning gathering. We pray for needs that are on your heart, for needs in our community, for our partners around the globe. We pray together as a church, and I'd love for you to join us at 845 at one of the back classrooms. But the other thing we're praying for growth in is not just that we'd be an unhurried people and a praying people, but that we would be a worshiping people. You see, every aspect of our gathering on a Sunday is about worship. Our prayer is about recognizing God's worth and submitting to him. Our time singing is about expressing our need for God and our gratitude to him. Our time in scripture should inspire worship in our hearts. If it doesn't, it's merely an intellectual endeavor. But then our time responding in song is our response to what the scripture says is true about him that we believe. My friends, you don't need to sneak in here late because you're trying to avoid the awkward moment where we pass the plate. Because we don't pass the plate. We just don't do that here. 
You also don't need to sneak in late though, feeling ashamed that you're running late. Life happens, I get that. I have three little ones. There's no shame. However, may I encourage you, do your best to get here ready and wanting, eager even to worship together. Would you commit to pray from, or pray with me for growth as we would be growing into unhurried people who spend time regularly with Jesus, a praying people and a worshiping people? I'd ask, also ask that you pray alongside our elders for opportunity. That's the last thing, for opportunity, for open doors for God to allow us to love people as Jesus have loved us. Pray for opportunities in this school. Pray for opportunities in the new housing development up the street. Please pray for that, that God would give us an open door. Pray for opportunity in this community. You know, God seemingly opened a door that we could not have even known where to knock on this last week for our church with an amazing opportunity for us to minister as a church in this community that we're continuing to now take steps down that path to see if it's a possibility but it just seems like something God's doing. So please pray with us for that very thing to continue. Pray for opportunity with future global partners. Pray for opportunity for you and I to love our actual geographical neighbors. Pray for those things with us. That's my exhortation to you. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.